giant robot smashing into other giant robots. This is the Giant Robots Smashing into Other Giant Robots podcast, where we explore the design, development, and business of great products. I'm your host, Chad Pytel, and with us today is Adam Scroggin, CEO of Cardboard. Adam, thanks for joining me. Glad to be here. So, Adam, we're going to talk a lot about the details behind Cardboard, uh, the progress you've made on the product and the business, and then we're going to do something different at the end where we go through sort of the list of platforms and services that Cardboard uses, and we'll get your take and, and ThoughtBot's take on each of them. I, I figured that'd be fun. But before we dig into all of that, can you tell the people listening exactly what Cardboard is? Sure. So building software is a very difficult proposition. It requires a lot of collaboration. It's really like a team sport. A lot of people want to build these thick requirements documents or follow a waterfall type process and hand that off. But we know that doesn't work very well. So that's where cardboard and user story mapping come into play. It makes the process just a lot more collaborative, allows teams to discuss what it is that they're going to build. And then they would uh, typically take that information and put it into their ALM tool. What do you mean by ALM tool? Application lifecycle management tool. So your Jira's of the world, mm-hmm. your Azure DevOps, even Trello. Some people can develop with just using a very simple tool like Trello. So looking at the Cardboard website, it's a little bit more clear that Cardboard isn't your ticket tracker. It isn't your backlog, but you're actually integrating on top of those to do story mapping and planning. Is that right? That's exactly right. So if you can imagine, a backlog is just a linear list of work to be done. There's really no story to be told there. But with Cardboard, you can basically outline a story map, which is your user's perspective or your user's journey through the application that you're going to build. So you try to think heavily about the outcomes, the business objectives that you're trying to hit, and you try to think about the journey that your user is going to be taking through your application that you're going to develop. And so where does the sort of idea or where's the genesis of Cardboard come from? Well, by the name, it's two simple words, card and board. (laughs) So much like Kanban, uh, it starts with a digital whiteboard. And if you can imagine just putting post-it notes or cards up on a board, that was the birth of the product, you know, something that simple, basically like a, a digital whiteboard. But now we've grown into something that's much, much more elaborate. We provide several different templates that allow a a variety of different uh, diagramming capabilities. Anything from like an empathy map to better understand that the persona that you're going to design for, user story mapping, opportunity canvas, business model canvas, all those type of things that really need to happen before you ever write your first line of code. And before you worked full-time on Cardboard, you were at a company called SEP, right? That's correct. I'm familiar with SEP. I'm not sure how many people listening are, but SEP is a consulting company, a software development consulting company, right? That's correct. SEP helps people build uh, their software products, either the design of the product or the implementation, development, and testing of the Mm -hmm. product. And how long has Cardboard been around for? It's been around for about five years now. Mm -hmm. We've been running Cardboard for about two and a half years uh, we've taken the ARR from about 70K per year all the way up to 290K, and we hope to be hitting 300K of ARR occurring here soon. Congratulations. So when you say you took it over, that means that it wasn't SAP that originally said, yeah, we have this pain, we want to solve it by creating cardboard. It was something that you took on. Right. So we weren't the founders of it, but we were already using the product. Mm-hmm. We liked the product. 
we wanted to make that transition or SCP wanted to make that transition from being just a consulting company to a product development company. And this is one of our many experiments at trying to grow a business and kind of manage our own product. So how has that experiment been going so far? I think it's gone great from the engineering side. Uh, mm-hmm. There are some other skills like sales and marketing that we're a little bit light on. So we've hired in in those areas mm-hmm. and we've tried to get a little bit more training in those areas. A lot of us are engineers and designers at heart. Right. And uh, the black magic of sales and marketing to us engineers, it's a little bit mysterious of how we're supposed to be doing it. Yeah, well, that's what we found at ThoughtBot because we, over the years we've created several products and we were able to get them to a certain point, actually right around or or just above the point that Cardboard is at. And what we realized once we got to that point was if we wanted to significantly grow up beyond that, we were outside of the skill set that is you know, the normal design and development that we do for our customers. And the business is very different than the business of consulting. And so we would need to bring on a new team. We would need to hire people or dedicate a full ThoughtBot team with a different skill set to that. And ultimately, we decided that it was best for the product to let another team take that on, in part because it wasn't worth the investment for ThoughtBot to do it, or it wasn't an investment that we were willing to make. Was there a struggle with that at SAP, or is there a a struggle with that at SAP in terms of making sure that the product gets what it needs? I don't think so. Not not originally. Mm -hmm. To us, it was a lot of fun to take something like this on. Mm -hmm. It was something that's new and exciting. As you know, in the consulting company, you're kind of at the whim of uh, doing what the customer wants. But when you own your own product or your own company, you don't have to do that anymore. You get to be the one who makes the decisions, and you get to be the one who has to deal with the ramifications of those decisions. And for me personally, that's a lot of fun to do. Being an engineer and a little bit entrepreneurial, um, it's just been a great experiment and a great experience for me to get to try to do some different things besides just writing code. So SEP is the parent company of Cardboard and you're the CEO. How does Cardboard fit within SEP in terms of what's your interaction with the rest of the company and how separate are you? And do you have your own team working on Cardboard full-time, all of that? Yes. Uh, so Cardboard does have its own team. We have three devs currently working right now, uh, a part-time accountant and a marketing person and myself. We also do use SEP engineers and designers from time to time, UX designers. When they're in between projects, it's a great time for them to uh, just step into the cardboard world and help out with the current feature that we're working on. And they usually have a ton of fun working on this while being in, in between projects. And you're in the SAP office? That's correct. Is that a, well, you're in it, you're doing it now, but is it an overall plus or are there downsides to it? I think it's a plus. I mean, if you can imagine if we had our own facility separated from SAP, uh, there would be quite a disconnect and it'd be hard to have conversations with people like hallway conversations. If I get stuck on a nasty Rails problem, I have basically 100 devs at SCP that I can just bump into and say, hey guys, if you had this problem, how would you handle it? Yeah. So I get that extra help uh, from time to time when I need it, uh, just having that array of resources that SCP has at mm-hmm. my disposal. So as you sort of stepped into the role of CEO of Cardboard, and you, you alluded to the idea that you're, you're entrepreneurial, but your background is as an engineer. Where did you find that you needed to 
get better or expand your skill set? Definitely in the marketing area. I feel like it's a little bit of a dark art. I never feel confident that I'm doing the right thing or even what to do. Mm -hmm. So that's why we hired a a full-time marketing person about a year ago at this point. Uh, She really helped us with creating content, be it video, blog articles, making all of our imagery look nice, our videos look good, advertising. Uh, another, you know, kind of dark art to me. We uh, use Google Ads, and it's one of the most successful ways to drive people to our product. But in the very beginning, I had really no idea how to bid on an ad or a keyword. I'm getting better, but having a full-time marketing person uh, has definitely uh, removed some of the, the dark art of marketing to me mm-hmm. and uh, really helped me out level up my game. From a business perspective, how do you approach you know, the business overall? Do you have growth targets and a ARR goal that you're working towards? We do. And I mentioned we were at 290 right now, and we have a goal of hitting 300 by the end of September. So 10 more K of ARR, and we will hit our end of September goal. Do you feel like you're on track to do that? I do. I think uh, closing another enterprise customer, just one more in the next couple months, will definitely get us to our goal. And how important do you think that goal setting is? I do think it's really important. For one reason, uh, we are fully bootstrapped. So we don't take any outside investment. We don't run cash negative. We're not going to dump millions of dollars into this product. We take revenue in and we turn around and invest it and keep a little bit in a you know, kind of a safe deposit box just in case uh, we had a bad month or two. Actually, in July was one of our worst churn months, but our churn will go up as we get bigger. So I'm not totally surprised about that, Mm -hmm. but it is something that kind of catches you off guard as you grow. Wow, our churn was like 25 customers last month, but now it's 40. What's going on there? And some of it's just due to growth. You know, as you get bigger, the count of customers will increase. But not necessarily the revenue loss isn't necessarily there, the revenue churn. On the product side, when you look at what needs to happen to hit that goal and and the next one beyond it, is it primarily marketing and sales driven stuff or is it product changes or improvements? Uh, Yes to everything. Uh, (laughs) There's there's so much that we need to do on so many fronts. Uh, One of the things I do believe in is good product market fit. Uh, so I, I try to get out there and talk to as many customers as I can, see where their struggles are, see what's missing for them, and uh, add those features in. At the end of the day, there's nothing more valuable than word of mouth and a customer telling someone else, like, wow, we use this product called Cardboard. It's amazing. It's really changed the way that we develop software. Instead of outputs, we're now focused on outcomes. So given that you're a bootstrap, startup that you're attempting to run profitably all the time, and it sounds like doing it, how do you balance the things that sales and marketing may you know drive and the things that are necessary to continue product design and development? Is there sort of a cadence that you have or a process you have to sorting out that priority? For me, I have to kind of push myself to go away from the code sometimes mm-hmm. and spend more time on the marketing and the sales front. Uh, So I'm learning more about outbound sales and outbound marketing right now, using email campaigns to get people interested in the product, to make people aware about the value proposition, what it is and why they might use it. So yeah, it's just something I have to push myself to because by default, I always want to go back to the code, fix a bug, 
make a new feature, but I know for growth, uh, it's really important that I focus on either doing more sales work and trying to talk to more people and more prospects or marketing and getting more people into the top of the sales funnel. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned that you are still writing code and sometimes you need to force yourself out of it. When we first emailed, you said something like, I felt like I was the only CEO who still codes. First of all, I guess the, the most obvious question is, why do you still code? I love it. I, I can't say anything more differently than mm-hmm. there's something about being in the zone of writing code. And I've a long time been a, a developer in the C family of languages, be it Java, C Sharp, C++. But uh, as soon as we uh, took on Cardboard, I was introduced to Ruby and Ruby on Rails. And I would say it's something that I've fallen in love with. I really enjoy the language and the framework, the convention that Rails provides you. Uh, I'm still, to be honest, a little iffy on JavaScript. It's a really weird language, and I don't like some of the things that it lets through. But yeah. Do you envision that even, maybe not on an infinite timescale, but on a reasonable timescale that you're going to make a point of ensuring that you still spend a significant amount of your time doing development for Cardboard? No, I would say not necessarily. Mm -hmm. One of my other passions is design, UX design. It's something that I'm not great at. I could make a living at it, but it is a very crucial part to the development process of features for Cardboard. So it's something that I've uh, been playing around with and trying to learn more user-centered design and those type of principles, visual design, making it look good, interaction design, making sure that things are discoverable by our users. There's other things to be involved in besides just the code, and I'm happy to do those those things. I think one of the most awesome things that you can do in any career is getting variety and pushing yourself to learn new things and to try new things. Get out of your comfort zone, you know? So does that mean that if Cardboard needed you to spend more of your time doing design and figuring out what to build that you'd be drawn in that direction and you would feel fulfilled by that work in the same way that you do as development? If it's what needed to be done Mm -hmm. to make the product successful and to make our customers happy, absolutely. I still think I would have a hole in my heart if I wasn't able to write a little bit of code here and there. But yeah, I mean, if I didn't get to write code on Cardboard anymore, I would probably find something else to write code Mm -hmm. on. Do you think the ability to write code and to be involved at the product level makes you a better CEO or a worse one? Wow, that's a good question. I would hope to think that it would make me better. The fact that I do understand the details, I can get into the gory details if necessary. But it does bring up some challenges like delegation. Mm -hmm. Uh, I have three developers right now who can help write code. Why am I still writing code? We don't need a fourth person. We need someone out there talking about the product, helping with the marketing, the sales piece, product market fit and design. Why am I doing that? So I can see both sides here. I could see other CEOs out there who are able to delegate and say, you know what, this is not my expertise. I'm going to stay out of it and I'm going to let the experts do their thing and they're going to be able to do it way better than I ever could. So it's both to me. It's maybe Mm -hmm. a positive thing in that I can help with some of the details and really steer the project at a technical level, but maybe also at some, sometimes a hindrance when the bigger picture stuff needs to be done. Yeah, I've talked before on the show about why I still code, and a big part of it comes down to I've been doing this for 16 years, and 
that sustainability of, of being able to do it for a long time is important to me and to the company. And I know that if I didn't have an outlet for coding sometimes and being involved in that, I probably would have burnt out or moved on a long time ago. That fulfillment part, being happy with what my job is and what I do is an important component. It's the major one why I still code. But I also acknowledge that there are probably times where it's not the most important thing for ThoughtBot. And I do worry that I I hold us back as a company by the times I'm coding instead of doing something else I could be doing. I can totally relate to, to what you're saying. So how do we come to terms with that as CEOs who still write code? <laughs> are you at terms with it? Have you come to terms with it? I think so. If I need to turn it off and close down my editor, not DI anything for a little bit, I think I can do that if that's what's necessary and needed to be successful. I think another important aspect is I get the important stuff done. And then in maybe in my free time, you know, as a CEO, you don't work 40 hours a week. Mm-hmm. You have to put in extra effort if you want that growth, if you want to be successful. So maybe later at night or on a weekend, you know, maybe that's when I fire up VI or Visual Studio Code and crank out some code and get that therapy, you know, get that happy serotonin feeling from writing some code. Yeah. And I think I've come to terms with it as well. Part of what has helped me do that is to realize that, yes, we may be slightly more successful business-wise if I were to focus 100% of my energies on traditional CEO things, or if we had you know, a CEO that was quote unquote better than that at that than I am. But that's not why ThoughtBot has done anything. You know, We exist to be the best designers and developers that we know how to be and to bring that to more people. And so being able to do that myself is living the purpose of ThoughtBot. And if we're slightly less profitable business-wise, I believe overall good will come of it. And that's been proven time and time again at ThoughtBot. Yeah, and I can relate to that too. I mean, if I had a choice between being happy and being profitable, I would pick being happy too. And sometimes I believe that just by being happy and getting fulfillment through your job and doing the right thing, other things will take care of themselves. The profitability will come. I mean, if if everyone hated what they were doing, I don't know how you sustain a profitable company. But if everyone loves what they're doing, they enjoy coming to work, uh, they enjoy creating the next biggest mobile app, then I think the profitability and the success of the company will sometimes just take care of it itself. Yeah. And if it doesn't, then, and but you had to be unfulfilled to get there, do you really want to get there? Right. Yeah. Then you, maybe your business model is not quite right. Yeah. So you sent me a list of tools and services that you use. You, you want to start chipping away at that list? Absolutely. Cool. So from a tech stack side, you mentioned already that Cardboard is built in Rails. That's not a choice that you made, right? Correct. Had you used Rails at all before? At SCP, we definitely have built many apps on mm-hmm. uh, on Rails. But uh, for me personally, it was a first dabble into the Rails environment. And at first, you know, I scratched my head at, at some of the things that I saw. I'm like, wait a minute, where's the return statement? How can you just assume that this code is returning this? Where are my brackets around my if statements? You know, it, it threw me for a little bit of a loop. It took me a little bit of adjustment. 
But now I'm fully adjusted. And now when I go back to some of those older languages, like the C++ and C Sharp, I don't want to see the curly brackets anymore. And the return statements, not all that necessary anymore. Mm -hmm. So it took some adjustment. But uh, yeah, we've done several projects in Ruby on Rails. It's a quick environment to get things up and running because of the convention over configuration. Yeah. I still hope that it's going to be around for a long time. It's a good tech stack. Yeah. You know, ThoughtBot built our reputation because we were one of the first or if not the first consulting company in the world to switch to Ruby on Rails back in 2005. Wow. And so 14 years ago. Yeah, we've been using it for a long long time and many of us still get super fulfilled by it. But there are other we well, we didn't choose Rails because it was going to be big. You know, it could have just as well been a fad in terms of popularity. We chose Rails right. because as designers and developers who had used lots of stuff before, it was very clear that at the time, Rails was the next generation of tool that was going to allow us to build products in the way that we wanted to build them. But nowadays, there are other tools that are better for certain jobs, but Rails makes up a big portion of being the right tool for some jobs, like normal web apps, uh, APIs are great to build in, in Rails. So Cardboard has a rich JavaScript front end. That's correct. Even a little bit of CoffeeScript. Yeah, and, and a little bit of CoffeeScript still. So are you using any sort of JavaScript framework? So we are still on Backbone. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think long-term that's where we want to be. I, I do like Backbone and some of the capabilities, but... Uh, there's a lot uh, of newer stuff out there. I've seen React and what it can do, Vue and what it can do. I know that those are the new hotness and what a lot of people are using. But yeah, we're still using a pretty vanilla JavaScript mm -hmm. and uh, some CoffeeScript uh, sprinkled out here and there. And of course, HTML and uh, CSS. Choosing a rich JavaScript framework like Backbone or React or Angular and then switching away from it is really quite difficult. It's not quite like oh, if you were rewriting your app in Rails from another framework, because you're probably going to switch programming languages too. But it's a big undertaking, and a lot of people just choose not to do it. Yeah, I, I can relate. It would be a very big investment on our part to rewrite the front end into something contemporary. Um, and I have concern by the time we got it done in something contemporary, there would be some other new hotness <laughs> yeah, out there exactly. that uh, we're already, you know, out of date and oh, well, you know. Right. But JavaScript is going to be around for a long time, right. even though it's maybe not my favorite programming language. It is the language of the browser right now. And mm -hmm. if you're into web application development, and I even know people do it on mobile and with Electron, even on desktop and stuff like that now. It's going to be around for a while, that's for sure. Yeah. So you did mention that you're using some CoffeeScript. Are you writing new code in CoffeeScript, or is that just legacy code? We still do write some of our new code in uh, CoffeeScript, uh, but where we can, we definitely want to try to move to something else like JavaScript. And mm -hmm. it does make the solution a little bit messy that you have different parts of the application, even though it's the front end here, are written in different languages. Uh, but it kind of comes with the front end anyway, because... Some things you're going to do in HTML, some in CSS, and some in a, in a JavaScript variant. Mm -hmm. So it's already a little bit, uh, I wouldn't say call it kludgy, but it is a little bit of a, a different animal when you're mixing all those technologies together. So what dictates whether you write something new in CoffeeScript versus just JavaScript? 
like if we were going into a file that was already written in CoffeeScript and yep. we have to add just the new event, right? Uh, we would just go ahead and just do that. Right. But maybe if we're doing a whole new screen and right. we have the opportunity to start from a clean slate or a new feature, that's when we would uh, choose to do it in something else. Yeah. We have not used CoffeeScript on any pro- new projects ever since actually before it was removed from Rails as you know, just being installed by default. It no longer is anymore. Uh, and I think the big thing that changed there was once ES6 and the pipeline changed in Rails for what it was like to use ES6 and be able to do that, ES6 brought a lot of features learned from CoffeeScript. I think in that sense, from my perspective, CoffeeScript sort of won, which was if part of the purpose of CoffeeScript was to influence and say, there's a better way to do this stuff, let's make our code better. I think in that respect, CoffeeScript sort of won because ES6 got a lot of the features that were driven by CoffeeScript or were causing people to use CoffeeScript. That's true. Same thing with SaaS. I think SaaS will have a lot longer longevity to it because it's way beyond where CSS is today, but there are certain aspects of CSS now that are clearly being driven by the things people love in SaaS are being added directly to SCSS. Yeah, you bring up a good point. It's like people take these base frameworks that are widespread and ubiquitous and they make it uh, a little bit better, uh, like SAS, like you mentioned. You know, It has some nice features that the original CSS didn't. But then uh, these languages like CSS or JavaScript kind of learn from these extensions or people inherit from their products and then they turn around and make the next version better. Yeah. I have to agree. So everything that you have is hosted on Heroku? Yes, that is true. All of our stuff runs on Heroku. I'm a big fan of Heroku. Uh, I love platform as a service versus maybe just raw AWS where you have to build stuff. Mm -hmm. It's amazing what you get once you have your source code already written. We have a nice build pipeline. Promoting to production is super easy. Spinning up new environments. uh, Hey, I have a pull request. Building a whole new environment is a click of a button. It's a really nice platform and all the additional add-ons that you can get, obviously things like Postgres, but things for monitoring like AirBrake or uh, TrackJS for front-end errors. It's just a really nice place to develop, I believe. Yeah, I agree. If it's a blank slate, a ThoughtBot for a new product, that's what we're going to choose. And you can see it in the teams that we have. When we do have to work on AWS, we have to spend a tremendous amount of time making that work well. Isn't that amazing how much you have to do mm-hmm. in AWS that's already kind of provided for you on right. Heroku? And that's, it sounds more mean. I got to think of a nicer way to say it. But if you huh. haven't used Heroku and you've only used AWS or you already sort of have sunk cost into AWS, People often say, like, Heroku is really expensive. How could we possibly use that? But if you see, like, side by side, Heroku being used versus AWS, you can see how the costs balance out, especially as consultants. We're not cheap. And if we're spending a bunch of time dealing with AWS, that's really expensive. That's a really good point, the amount of time that you would spend troubleshooting versus having maybe like Heroku uh, where you don't have to worry about that stuff as much. I can tell you for... Every dollar that I spend on Heroku, there's a $50 return in terms of revenue. To me, it's not that expensive for what right. we get. And like, like you said, we don't have a lot of engineers sitting there trying to like stand stuff up. The uptime is just incredible. 
maybe once or twice a year, there's a little bit of maintenance associated with the databases, but that literally adds up to like three minutes per year. Yeah. Once you get it up and running, it stays up and running. Yeah. Just, you know, in the interest of completeness, I did recently do a product on Elastic Beanstalk that was deployed to. And it's it's sort of like Heroku, but on AWS, and it's an Amazon product. But what I was doing there was very rudimentary, and it still had a setup cost. And oh, really? every once in a while, Puma and Nginx <laughs> have weird errors, and I can't get any support for fixing it. It's something that, you know, no one else seems to have the problem And what we're doing on that app is very straightforward. If I wanted to do anything more complex than just that single Rails app talking to a a Postgres database, I would be in for either a a lot of learning, a lot of pain, or needing to work with another consultant. Um, And that's what this client has. They have another consulting company, an IT support group that admins their AWS instances and setup and dashboard and all that stuff. So they're already paying that overhead just to another company. So yeah, I think a lot of people don't take into account the full total cost of ownership of an application. And so they look at the price tag on Heroku and say, oh, that doesn't make sense. I could have this set up in three hours. Well, what's what's the cost of your time, even if you're a founder or a technical founder, someone technical? I think that if you really look at the total picture, so there are times where we can't use Heroku or we or, you know we don't that it actually makes a lot of sense to use something else and that's like if we have very strict security requirements or HIPAA compliance there's things like at the database level and that kind of thing which aren't really covered and there are other Heroku like platform as a service that do that for us and we'll we'll often opt to use one of them instead of building things from scratch too. Yeah, I haven't really thought about um in a regulated industry or if extra security is needed. Uh, everything that Heroku provides out of the box for security ha- has met our needs. Yeah, for 99% or what, you know, some huge percentage of all companies, it's fine. It's only when you have different uh, regulations. Yeah, and they offer another product. I think it's called Private Spaces. Uh, mm-hmm. But yeah, the, the price tag goes way up for that stuff. And I think that's where the HIPAA compliance regulation, government work... No multi-tenant, you know, your data is going to be on right. a nice separate place where you don't have to worry about any contamination. Not that you have to yep, deal with that's that anyway. Exactly right. but. Yeah. For the rare applications that really require it, yeah, Heroku does have another product that satisfies that as well. So then in terms of the rest of the development pipeline, um, your code hosted on GitHub, right? That's correct. And have you used any of the other sort of competitors to GitHub out there? So we've used, not on Cardboard, but SCP, we've mm-hmm. used, you know, GitLab, Azure mm-hmm. DevOps, or the TFS code base, maybe a few other Git flavors, but uh, I'm a huge Git advocate, and I think GitHub is probably my favorite place to host code at this present time. Yeah, same answer for me. What do you use for CI? So for CI, we use a product called Semaphore. It does a pretty good job. It doesn't take too long to configure. Uh, we have three types of tests. We have our spec tests, which are like unit tests for our Ruby on Rails code. We have some front-end JavaScript tests, and then we have like full-stack tests that we use uh, Cucumber and a headless browser, headless Chrome, mm-hmm. to do our full end-to-end testing. 
And uh, so far, I've been pretty happy with Semaphore. Um, they have some parallelization. So we buy four boxes per month, and they can take all our tests and divide them into approximately four equal chunks and run our test in, uh, on four machines in parallel. So instead of doing it on one machine and maybe taking you know, 25, 26 minutes, we can get our builds done in about six minutes. Cool. Our default tool for this is CircleCI. Sure. But I think the important thing was I, I asked the question, what are you using for CI? And you had an answer. As of, <laughs> We believe in testing that it's important that you have it automated in a CI pipeline. So whatever you use <laughs> beyond that, you know, is better than nothing. Yeah. So on that front, one of the things I love about our product is we could find a bug at uh, 9.15 a.m. reported by a customer. I could tell the developer, hey, we have this bug. We need to fix it. The developer reproduces it, has it fixed in a couple of hours. So now it's like 11, 15 a.m. They submit a pull request. It gets reviewed 15 minutes later. Then it's on semaphore. The tests are running, and it passes, like I said, in like six, seven minutes. And then on Heroku, we can feel very, very confident about hitting that promote to production button. Mm -hmm. So I don't know how many companies out there could find a bug reported by a customer at like 9.15 a.m., and then by lunchtime, have it already fixed and out on production. We've done that countless times. Yeah. I mean, not every bug can be fixed that quickly, but the uh, simple ones where the customer is really clear about what their problem is, we can have things turned around really quickly. And that's because of the CI/CD pipeline. Mm -hmm. So I give our engineers a lot of credit to getting that all set up, uh, Semaphore some credit, and also Heroku for all being really good services yeah. to help SaaS businesses like ours. Have you looked at automating the deployment to production? We do have a human in the loop, yeah. and it's a very simple step of hitting a, a single button that's promote to production. I like having that one mm -hmm. last step of human control. No, I've not really thought about or looked into full automated promotion to production. So if, as soon as a pull request got pulled into master, it automatically goes out to production. Haven't looked at it quite yet. It seems a bit terrifying, but yeah. I, I imagine there are people who are out there doing it. Yeah, I think that that is like the ultimate level. And ThoughtBot typically isn't there on any of our products as well, because I think it's not that we couldn't. It's more about the level of investment that would be required to get to that stage doesn't match the stage that a lot of the products we work on are at to really get to that last mile or that last 1%. But it's something to strive for, I think. Yeah, I agree. Luckily, you know, hitting one button to push to production isn't too much of yep. an investment. Sometimes you need more than one just pull request coming in right. before you deploy to uh, production. Sometimes just good to have that last minute check. I know on Heroku, when you promote to production, there's also a nice little tool that says compare on GitHub. So you can compare production to what you're getting ready to push. Right. I almost look at that every single time. Mm -hmm. It's just a five-minute code diff for me just to make sure I understand what it is that's going to production. One last check to make sure that everything is good. So a five-minute investment really isn't too bad mm -hmm. when you're pushing two, three, four times per week. Yeah. What do you use for analytics in the app? So we have several tools. Uh, of course, we have Google Analytics, uh, which is... A bit complicated, for me at least. I'm still trying to learn all the nooks and crannies. 
And we do use Google ads. So we have it tied so we can tell like how our campaigns are doing. Um, when anyone purchases, we can understand from what medium did they come from mm-hmm. or what referral that they came from, be it uh, an outside blog article or an advertisement or any other campaign that we're running. Uh, we also use another tool called Mixpanel, and I like it too. We use it to track all of our features. So whenever we build a new feature, we try to ask questions like, what do we want to learn once this feature is out in production? Uh, one of the common things we want to know is how frequently it's used. So we have nice graphs of all the features that we build over time. How are they getting used? And that allows us to then make good decisions about, do we invest more in this feature? Because a lot of times we're building just the MVP of a feature. And we want to see how the customer base reacts before we invest more in it. And having analytics is really key to being able to do that correctly or successfully. So we have nice reports that tell us how our features are doing over time. And if one is starting to lose customer appeal, you know, it's time to maybe think about retiring that. And it's very satisfying to go and rip out a feature that's not used anymore, mm-hmm. rip out all the code that's associated with it, and kind of clean your product up a little bit. And on many of our products, we embed Intercom as well. That was on your list too. That's correct. Yes. I yeah. love Intercom. Yeah. It's pretty great. Do you use that pretty exclusively for doing all the customer support too? Yeah. So we do have the traditional support at cardboardit.com kind of email address, but we're trying to funnel more and more through Intercom. And I would say probably 90% of our customer questions or issues do come in through Intercom. It's a great tool. You know, even if you're out of the office, you can use your mobile phone. They have a nice mobile app where you can see every open customer question and respond to it, you know, just on your mobile app. That's pretty much what we use as the default. Um, Sometimes there's another company that's based in Boston called Drift. And depending on the needs, we might use Drift instead, but um, Intercom's the default. So then you use Stripe for payment processing? We do. Stripe is sort of a (laughs) no-brainer. I think the only time we haven't used Stripe nowadays is when we're doing business in a country that Stripe doesn't work with. Because there, there are some countries in the world that you know Stripe doesn't work in. Huh, I did not know that. Or if the company that we're working with comes to us with like, I like to call it like payment processor baggage. They've already, you know, they have to use this other payment processor or they are obligated to use it for some reason. But Stripe is our default. Yeah, Stripe is, uh, like you said, it's a no-brainer. Really easy to integrate into your app and... Sometimes they afterthought for a lot of engineers when they build something, they're as happy that they build something, they have a cool product on their hand. But now let's like monetize it. Let's try mm-hmm. to turn this into revenue. It's a pretty easy step to go from that. If you do use Stripe, of course, they take a cut off of every single payment that's made, but that's fair in my book. I don't think they take too much. You know, for a company starting out, that cut that you're giving them is no different than you know, you'd have to give any payment processor, really. True. Yeah, it's really easy to integrate in with your application. They have some front-end stuff, too. You don't have to worry about uh, conversion of money. They even have some nice settings to tell people, like, when their credit card's about to expire, when the credit card payment fails, and you don't have to write any of that code. So that's one of the things about being a SaaS business is you turn around and you use a lot of SaaS services yourself. Mm-hmm. And you just learn that there are people out there who can do it way better than you can and you can get to market quicker or get a new feature out there quicker. 
at a much lower cost just by using some of these expert services that are out there. Well, and I think one of the final ones of those is SendGrid that you mentioned you use. So that's, for people who don't know, that's email sending, transactional right. emails and that sort of thing from within the app. That's a good example of, you know, we've had to do that by hand in the past and deliverability and just the feature set that SendGrid gives you. If you were to implement some of those random features that you might need, you'd be investing a lot in your own product. Instead, you can pay, you know, whatever it is, 70 bucks, 80 bucks a month to get it handled for you at, at volume. It's super cheap. Right. So much cheaper than developing it yourself. The price I just mentioned there is probably like for a much higher tier plan. I think it's free to get started with SendGrid and then probably a lo- lot lower monthly if you have a small volume. Yeah, I think you might get 10 or 20,000 emails for free. Yeah. I think we have the $79 plan that you mentioned, mm-hmm. which affords you a few other features, I believe, too help with maybe whitelisting your uh, domain and stuff like that so you don't end up in people's spam emails. But yeah, email is a core piece of our product. It's how people invite each other to user story mapping boards to collaborate with each other. Yeah, yeah, it's a core piece of our product and uh, Syngrid has done very, very well for us. Well, Adam, thanks for running through this list for me. It was it was fun. I would invite listeners, if you use something different <laughs> and you feel strongly about it or you have a product of your own and you say, hey, take another look at this product, get in touch. You can email me at hosts at giantrobots.fm and I can address it or, or look at it and, and talk about it on a future show. Adam, if people want to get in touch with you, uh, where's the best place for them to do that? So my email address is probably the best way to do it at mm-hmm. this time. Uh, I'm not heavily involved on Twitter. So my email address is adam at cardboardit.com. And I assume from that, if people want to look more at Cardboard, they do that at cardboardit.com. That's correct. Cool. You can subscribe to the show and find notes for this episode and every other one of the show at giantrobots.fm. If you have questions or comments, email us at host at giantrobots.fm, like I said earlier. And you can find me on Twitter at cpytel. This podcast is brought to you by ThoughtBot and produced and edited by Tom Obarski. Thanks for listening and see you next time. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. We are experienced designers and developers who turn your idea into the right product. With local studios in Boston, San Francisco, New York, London, Austin, and Raleigh, let's build something great together.